happening, food eaters? This is the Food Labels Revealed podcast with your host, Mel Weinstein, the self-professed prophet of processed foods. This is episode number 58. Well, I'm back uh, after a two-month hiatus. Time needed to deal with a relationship disaster, a move to another city, continuing isolation during a worsening pandemic, and growing social instability in the country. What a year, right? But we soldier on. Life is still good and precious and challenging, and there are always opportunities for new delights and surprises if we just remain open, observant, and grateful. In the first four years of this show, uh, it's just been me on my own babbling and blabbing about industrial ingredients, food labels, processed foods, and fast foods. Just my personal views and opinions with some occasional facts thrown in. In this new year, I plan on expanding the scope of the podcast by including interviews from noted experts in the American food system. Leading off is my interview with Marion Nessel, noted author, national speaker, longtime advocate and activist in the world of commercial food and nutrition. Here is just a tiny bit of her bio. She has a Ph.D. in molecular biology and a master's in public health nutrition from the University of California in Berkeley. She has held faculty positions at Brandeis University, University of California San Francisco School of Medicine, a visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell University, and is a retired professor from the New York University Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health, where she was a chair from 1988 to 2003. In the 1980s, she was a senior nutrition policy advisor for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and an editor for the Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health. Her research efforts into the industrialization of food, the influences of big food marketing, government food policy on matters of consumer health and choice, led her to write six books on these subjects, including Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, What to Eat, and Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. Her recent books are Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat, and Let's Ask Marion, What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food. Over the course of her career, Ms. Nessel has received numerous awards and recognitions for her work. In 2011, she was named as Public Health Hero by the University of California School of Public Health at Berkeley. Mark Bittman, noted journalist on matters of food, ranked her number one in his list of foodies to be thankful for. I hope you enjoy this interview with Ms. Nessel. I'll return on the back end to summarize key points and to finalize the episode. Okay, I want to welcome Marian Nessel to the Food Labels Revealed podcast. It's an honor to have you with us to share your vast knowledge of food nutrition and your wisdom, I should say, as well. Food nutrition, industrialized foods, food politics, and government policy. That's really quite a breadth of knowledge that you have. And you definitely deserve the title of the Zarina of food. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get started with some questions. 
I want to uh, mention that I saw in your bio that you earned a PhD in molecular biology and a master's in public health nutrition. With that educational background, when and how did you get interested in food politics and government food policies? Well, I had a, this doctorate in molecular biology, but I wasn't doing research. I had a teaching job at a university and I was teaching cell and molecular biology in a biology department that had a rule that you could only teach the same class three times in a row. And then you had to switch to whatever was needed. And what was needed was a human biology class. The students were asking for a class in nutrition. And I was essentially assigned to teach it. Um, and I have to say, uh, it was like falling in love. I, I mean, I just had so much fun with it right from the beginning. I could see that nutrition was a fabulous way to teach undergraduate biology. Uh, people had, a, the students had a lot of trouble relating to cell and molecular biology. You can't see it, taste it, or feel it, um, but they could certainly re relate to nutrition. Mm -hmm. And it was an excellent way to, to talk about uh, how food is used in the body, how metabolism works. A lot of really basic biochemical concepts could be uh, understood through nutrition in a way that was just much more fun for students. Um, and I've just never looked back. Uh, in that first class, I was using popular books that had come out at around that time. I have to say this was in the mid-1970s. It was really a long time ago. And Francis Moore Lappe had just published Diet for Small Planet. That was one of my texts. I also used a book that Center for Science and the Public Interest had just put out called Food for People, Not for Profit. And so I was into the mix of science and politics right from the beginning. Great. In December of last year, 2020, kind of under the radar because of all the things going on in our country at that time, the USDA and the Health and Human Services Department issued the latest five-year dietary guidelines for Americans. So the next few questions have to do with, uh, with those guidelines. Now, personally, I don't think that I ever paid any attention to those guidelines over the course of my adult life. You know, they come out every uh, five years, right? Since 1980. 1980, yeah. Okay, I guess it's not my whole adult life. <laughs> and I can't really remember having any conversation about these guidelines with, with anybody else either. Do you think that these recommendations really impact the average American or do they just affect how government dollars are spent on federal programs like school lunches and mm -hmm. food welfare? Well, well, first of all, the guidelines aren't meant for you. Uh, they're, meant for, they're meant for nutritionists and policymakers, and they have a big impact on nutritionists. Nutritionists advise people to eat based on the guidelines. So unless you were dealing with a nutritionist who told you about them, you'd never hear about them. Okay. Um, I've kind of made a career of analyzing them. So the um, it, it was amusing to me that they came out during a week I had decided to take a vacation from my blog. Um, and I was kind of annoyed at having to come back and deal with them right in the middle of that week. Um, they've come out every five years since 1980. 
Uh, they're jointly produced by the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Health and Human Services. And the food industry cares a lot about them because if they imply uh, that people would be healthier not eating some kind of food product, the company that makes that product gets kind of upset. So they're extremely politicized. And these were the most politicized of any of the guidelines that have ever come out. Yeah. before. I was on the guidelines committee in 1995. Um, and we on the committee did the research, wrote the research report, and then we wrote the guidelines based on our report. So it was entirely a report from the scientific committee. The agencies didn't do much except clean up the grammar. That changed in 2005, under the Bush two administration, when the that administration, instead of having the committee write the guidelines, they had the agencies write the guidelines. So that already made it more political. And this time, uh, the uh, agencies not only wrote the guidelines, but they also set the research agenda. So they told the committee what the committee was going to be doing its research on. The committee did the research, produced a research report, which the agencies paid no attention to when they wrote the guidelines. I found all of that hilarious. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of sad. A lot of time, money, and attention goes into that by the people putting but it together. I think, we should, I think we should stop doing it for yeah, the record. doesn't make any sense. Okay. No, particularly because they don't change. Yeah. They say exactly the same things now as they did in 1980. So why bother? So maybe the rest of my questions are irrelevant, but but just out of my own curiosity, uh, I, will, <laughs> I will ask a few more about the guidelines. So there's this uh, my plate graphic, you know, that's been showing up for quite a while. And it mentions five categories of foods, fruits, vegetables, grains, dairy, and protein. Protein! Protein, that's my question. <laughs> Why did a group of 20 noted scientific advisors choose protein, which is a class of macromolecules, as a food category? And why just well, focus on protein? They didn't. The committee had nothing to do with them. Uh, the, you're talking about the My Plate Food Guide, which yeah, is done yeah. completely by the Department of Agriculture. Um, and it's supposed to be based on the guidelines, but the current My Plate was done during the Obama administration. Um, and under you know, the Obamas, there was this Let's Move campaign. And the leading person responsible for that campaign was Sam Cass, who's a chef. Protein is a chef's term for uh, the center, for what goes on the center of the plate. That's what they call it. Oh, it, has no, okay, it, has no, it has no nutritional meaning as a food at all, yeah. uh, because vegetables have protein, grains have protein, right. dairy products have protein, everything has protein. Sure. So the committee had nothing to do with that. And the um, uh, that was just something that was done during the Obama administration. And oddly enough, the last guidelines the last two sets of guidelines didn't do anything to change it. They must like it. Okay, so even though it really doesn't make any sense, it's just, no, absolutely not. It, it drives me crazy. We're actually. stuck with it. <laughs> We're stuck with it. <laughs> I searched the guidelines for the following key words because because of my podcast, you know, I was interested about ingredients, and so I wanted to find out if the 
keywords, ultra-processed food, junk food, and fast food were, were going to oh. show up in the guidelines. Oh, fast there, food's in there. Fast food is in there? Because I didn't I'm come sure, up with I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure I saw that. Maybe not. Yeah, because I typed it in two different ways. It's two words okay. and, and it's one word. I didn't see any hits. Okay. So given the huge impact that these types of foods have on the health of Americans, why aren't they directly addressed in this document? I mean, you may have already answered the question, uh, question because you're saying the document has is really talking to nutritionists, but but you know, I would think nutritionists would want to know about that too. Well, I think nutritionists need to know about ultra processed foods, but ultra processed is a relatively new concept. It's come out in the last five years. I think it's enormously important because ultra-processed foods are defined in a very specific way. And because they're defined, it's been possible to do an enormous amount of research on them, looking at the correlation between consumption of ultra-processed foods and health outcomes, and also doing a controlled clinical trial. Mm -hmm. that demonstrates without question that if you feed people a lot of ultra-processed foods, they eat more. Right. They don't really know why they eat more, and the investigators don't know, but they eat more. And they, in that particular experiment, which was done at NIH, under totally controlled conditions, um, they ate more than 500 calories more a day which is enough to gain a pound a week, which is exactly what they did. Um, so this is an enormously important concept. Yes. And the fact that the committee, it was, not, it was not on the agenda for the committee to deal with, and the committee was only allowed to deal with the items that were on the, that agenda. So the agencies excluded ultra-processed from the discussion right from the get-go, which means that essentially these guidelines are five years be behind the times. Okay, yeah. You're, you're, you're hoping that the next guidelines will, will address that issue. I hope there won't be next guidelines. Yeah, right. want another <laughs> I'm done with them. <laughs> right. Okay, you mentioned ultra-processed foods. I'm going to skip to the question I had, which was, uh, what is your definition? of an ultra-processed food? Well, it's not my definition. It's the official definition of Carlos Montero and his colleagues at the School of Public Health in Sao Paulo, Brazil, um, who established, who invented the term and established the definition. And the definition of ultra-processed foods are foods that are industrially produced cannot be made in home kitchens because they contain ingredients that are not available in supermarkets. Um, and, and that helps you a lot with going to a supermarket and looking at a food label, because if it's got ingredients that you don't have in your home kitchen or can't get, then you know it's ultra processed. And basically it's junk foods. It's a fancy name for junk foods, but it distinguishes junk foods from foods that are processed in other ways, but don't have all these added things. A really high quality ice cream, for example, which contains only three ingredients, uh, milk, cream, and sugar, that's not an ultra processed food. Right. But an ice cream that contains a vast number of texturizers, artificial colors, artificial sweeteners, all those other things would be artificial, would, would be considered 
ultra-processed. Uh, the best example is chips or corn. Corn on the cob is unprocessed, canned corn is processed, and Doritos are ultra-processed. Everybody knows what they are. Right, right. So a good guideline to follow if you're in a grocery store is, is to look at food labels, look for those ultra-processed ingredients, and then put that food back on the shelf. Yeah, or, or eat them, or if you can't resist, eat them in very small quantities, or try to pick the ones that have the shortest ingredient lists. Right, right. All right, next question. I, I think I'm going to skip it because you already mentioned that you're not that interested in the guidelines, so I'm going to go to the next one after that. Yeah, I'll just uh, say one more thing about them. The yeah. reason that I'm not interested in them, because I think they're, they're it's, I'm interested, you know, I've made a career of studying them, and they're heavily politicized, and so it's food politics, that's what I study. But mm -hmm. if you're looking for dietary advice, um, just follow. It's, I mean, dietary advice is so simple that the journalist Michael Pollan did it in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. That takes care of it. Yeah. There's a, a little motto I have at the end of each of my podcast episodes. It's sort of similar. It's uh, if you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from nature's plants, not manufacturing plants. There you go. I think that kind of covers it too. The the podcast focuses primarily on processed foods, particularly the ultra processed foods you mentioned. I try to draw connections between worsening public health problems like increasing obesity, type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, etc., and the growing consumption of those industrial foods. On a scale of one to ten, with ten being the strongest connection. How would you rate the influence of those types of foods on America's health and why? Oh, I mean, they're strongly related and we have evidence to prove it. Um, for one thing, there's a very strong correlation between consumption of ultra processed foods and overweight, obesity, type two diabetes, heart disease, and even there's even correlations with mortality. Uh, but that's correlation. It's difficult to do causation. But the experiment that I was talking about, which was done at NIH, put people in a metabolic ward where their diets were controlled. And at the end of two weeks, people who were fed a diet based mainly on ultra-processed foods ate 500 calories more a day on average and gained weight. Um, so there you are. You don't need to know any more than that, Just that the these foods encourage people to eat too much. Right. And overeating is the major cause of obesity. I mean, really, it's a matter of calories in. Um, if you want to lose weight, the first thing you do is to cut out ultra-processed foods, starting with sugary beverages. That would be the place to start. Okay. After a long career advocating for positive changes in food governance and nutrition, what type of diet do you follow and recommend? I follow my own um, advice. I would never advise anybody to eat anything or to stop eating anything that I didn't eat or couldn't stop. I mean, I'm, I follow my own advice. I eat a largely but not exclusively plant-based diet. I'm an omnivore. I eat junk food. I just try not to eat too much of it. All right. So in terms of junk food, you're talking like once a week, once a month, or just a few times a year? Or? A couple times a week. 
for sure, but just not in very large quantities. Right. And soft drinks never. I don't like them very much. But you know, I eat ice cream. I eat candy. I eat potato chips. <laughs> I like fried food. I mean, you know, I I think food is one of life's greatest pleasures. And I wouldn't deny anything. I wouldn't deny any delicious food to anybody. The issue is quantity. Right. And I'm very fortunate is that I can stop. Yeah. I know not every I know not everybody can do that. <laughs> right. I can do that. And so you know, I can eat, I can have candy in the house and not gorge on it. I can have ice cream in the house and not feel like I have to eat pints of it. Yeah. Um, but not everybody can do that. And I tell people, if you can't, if you don't feel like you can control it and you know if it's in the house, it's screaming for you to eat it, don't have it in the house. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in that category. So I try to minimize how, how much of that I have available to me. The American Journal, <clears throat> excuse me, the American Journal of Preventive Medicine in October 2016 published an article on the sponsorship of health organizations like the American Diabetes Association by companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola. They sponsored a total of 95 national health organizations, including many medical and public health institutions whose specific mis missions included fighting the obesity epidemic. And the, the same companies lobbied against 29 public health bills intended to reduce soda consumption or improve nutrition. What is currently the status of this handshake between health organizations and purveyors of unhealthy foods? It hasn't changed much. In my book, Unsavory Truth, How the Food Industry Excuse the Science of What We Eat, I wrote about the um, involvement of the of food companies in the American, what was then the American Dietetic Association is now the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and the organization that I belong to, which is the American Society for Nutrition. And both organizations take a great deal of money from food companies um, and argue that they want to be inclusive and keep the food industry, you know, talking to nutritionists. A lot of nutritionists work for food companies. Um, I think it's an enormous conflict of interest mm -hmm. that if you take money from um, a company making a sugary drink, it's very unlikely that you're going to be making recommendations to your members to advise everybody that they should cut down on sugary beverages, which I consider to be step one in trying to lose weight. Um, and I say that because when my book, Soda Politics, came out uh, in 2015, I didn't write it as a diet book. I wrote it as a advocacy manual, how you go about advocating for changes in the food system. But I had people write me after they read the book and say, I read your book and I lost 10 pounds. I read your book and I lost 20 pounds. I read your book and I lost 40 pounds. The record was 80. Right. And they, these people told me that all they did was cut sugary beverages out of their diet. That was the it's only common. change. Was the only change they made. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's amazing. Just on the basis of drinking the the high. They must, they must have been drinking a lot. They must have been a lot. Yes. <laughs> all right. Um, processed foods sold in groceries are required by law to post 
and ingredients label to let people know what they are consuming. But fast food restaurants do not have that same requirement. Why is it like that? I think because restaurants don't have common menus. They change their menus every day. You know, the only restaurants that have menus that um, are the same from day to day are fast food restaurants, and they do have nutrition information available. But not ingredients. Yeah, they have to have, uh, have, to have yes, nutrition. No, that's there. I'm, I'm pretty sure they have to make that information available. They don't have to make it available in the stores, but they do have it online. Mm, okay. Uh, in my research, you will find a small percentage of national chain restaurants uh, revealing the ingredients in their foods. And, of course, they have to show the nutrition, which is always the case. But uh, okay. I see uh, it's a very, very limited amount of information you can get. Well, nobody's been enforcing it. Um, and there, there has never been much interest in enforcing this kind of thing because uh, I think because there's so little evidence that it makes any difference to anybody's consumption patterns. Um, this kind of information affects my consumption patterns. Right, and mine. <laughs> you know, if I... <laughs> If I go to a, a a bakery in New York City that has calorie labels on it, uh, you know, if I go to Starbucks or something like that and see that a muffin there has 800 calories, I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> you know, I'm just not going to do that. But most people who go to these places don't care about it and don't pay any attention to it. Um, and they're not going there because they're on diets. And other restaurants, non-chain restaurants, change their menus every day. It would be absolutely impossible for them to produce this information. I mean, look at the problems that something like Chipotle had with calorie, with calorie labeling, which is law. Calorie labeling is law. It was part of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Um, oddly enough. And so Chipotle has uh, calorie labeling, but the way you order a Chipotle is you tell the server how much you want of a particular ingredient. And you know, I, I know this is conceptually difficult, but the number of calories that are in a food depend entirely on how much of it there is. Of course, yes. <laughs> if I had one concept I could get across to absolutely everybody, it would be that larger portions have more calories. Yeah, you think that would be common knowledge by now. You would think so, but believe me, it's not. And in fact, we've proven that it's not at NYU. Uh, where we asked students to say how many calories there were in an eight ounce soda and how many calories there were in a 64 ounce soda. And even if they're mathematically challenged, they should have been able to multiply by eight, but they didn't. The average was a multiplier by three. So I said to the instructor, you gotta go back and ask your class why they didn't multiply by eight. And they told her that having, um, you know, if they guessed that a, a eight ounce soda had a hundred calories, then a 64 ounce soda would have 800 calories. And that was impossible. Oh, they, they just, thought that was too high. They just simply couldn't believe that a, a soda that you might drink would have that many calories. So it's not intuitively obvious. Mm. And I think that's the basis of a lot of problems with 
you know, well, reason why people have trouble losing weight is because they're eating too much. And they just don't know it because you can't tell. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Hey, can I squeeze one more question in that sure. I have a particular interest? I'll try to shorten it. There's roughly 10,000 additives in commercial foods that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Mm-hmm. And when a, when a food company comes up with a new food ingredient and they petition the FDA, they seek to get GRAS status or GRAS status. I never know how to pronounce that, which is generally recognized as safe. Strangely, though, the burden of proof for the safety of that new ingredient rests with the manufacturing company uh, who either conducts their own research to validate the safety of it or they hire a contract lab. Given the potential bias of such research findings, how can consumers truly trust that new ingredients that show up on food labels are really safe? Well, you have to trust the FDA. Because the companies send that information in the reports of the safety investigations of the FDA, the FDA reviews them. And in some cases, the FDA says, uh-uh, back to the drawing boards, we're not gonna take this one. Um, but you can't. I mean, and the, the assumption is that these things are consumed in such small quantities that they're unlikely to be harmful. Um, But every now and then there's an enormous fuss about one or the other. Um, The FDA doesn't have the personnel, doesn't have the time, doesn't have the money, doesn't have a whole lot of things to oversee food additives in this way. And the big question that your question raises is why don't we give the FDA the power and the authority and the money to do the job that it's expected to do. And the answer to that question is the food industry doesn't want it. Sure. Particularly in light of the fact that there have been grass additives removed from the approved list over, you know, the last several decades. Yeah. Every now and then one comes up and there's a big fuss about it and it gets ungrassed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hey, Ms. Nessel, I really appreciate your appearing on the podcast and sharing this information with us. Would you like to mention your blog and uh, your latest book that was recently published and mention ways that people can get a hold of uh, the, the information that uh, you, you provide us? Yeah, I write a daily blog at foodpolitics.com, almost daily. Um, And that's an easy place to have access to what I've written, uh, to media interviews. I'll post this one on it um, and any other information about my work. The most recent book is Let's Ask Marion. It's co-authored with a friend of mine who asked questions and I answered them. There are 18 questions, a little teeny book. Um, the one on top of the pile behind me. Um, It's a little teeny book, and it's meant to be a summary of a lot of my work. I also tweet at Marion Nessel. Um, I don't know. I guess that takes care of it. My life is on my website. So if you know anything, go to One-stop shopping. Just go to your your, your website. Right. Hey, uh, again, uh, on behalf of uh, my listeners, thank you for this very informative interview. It was a real pleasure. Oh, it was my pleasure, too. Great questions. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye now. 
Hey, food eaters. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Marian Nessel was a delight to talk to and very gracious to share her time with me. You can tell that she really enjoys what she does and even after retirement, continues to learn, educate, and advocate. Here are some of the key points that I took away from our conversation. Although a big deal is made about them every five years, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans issued jointly by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Health and Human Services Department, are not really intended for average Americans. They are more aimed towards policymakers and nutrition experts. By 2005, under the Bush administration, the guidelines were completely controlled by the government agencies and did not reflect the research and recommendations of the Advisory Committee of Scientists. According to Ms. Nessel, these guidelines haven't changed since 1980, and she thinks they should be discontinued. The current MyPlate guide was introduced during the Obama administration. The emphasis on protein, a macromolecule, not a food, as one quarter of the plate, was influenced by chefs who traditionally viewed protein as the central part of any meal. Again, the Advisory Committee of Scientists had nothing to do with that recommendation. I discovered that the dietary guidelines do not specifically mention ultra-processed foods, junk food, or fast food, although they make up a considerable amount of the American diet. According to Ms. Nessel, the word ultra-processed is a fairly new term, first proposed by Carlos Montero, a researcher for the School of Public Health at the University of Sao Paulo, Brazil, whose research suggests a strong connection between the consumption of ultra-processed foods and poor health. A National Institute of Health diet-controlled study showed that a meal plan high in ultra-processed foods caused an increased intake of 500 calories per day, resulting in significant weight gains. In Ms. Nessel's words, an ultra-processed food is industrially produced and cannot be made in a home kitchen since all the ingredients are not available. She equated the term with junk food. She recommends that if a person desires to eat junk food, then it should only be eaten in small quantities. When asked about nonprofit health organizations taking money from junk food and beverage manufacturers, she said that that was a serious conflict of interest because those organizations would be reluctant to advise their members to cut back or eliminate those foods while they were, while they were actually receiving financial support from them. The first step to losing weight is cutting back on the consumption of sugary beverages. Restaurants are required to post information about the calorie content in their foods as a result of the Affordable Care Act, which was passed under the Obama administration. The most important concept to get across to people is that larger portions of food contain more calories. All right, look under the show notes to find links to Marion Nessel's information blog and recent books. To all the listeners in podcast land, old and new, I appreciate you tuning in. If you have a little more time, I'd greatly appreciate a five-star rating at the iTunes Store. You can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed in their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean. That's at www.podbean.com or just by Googling Food Labels Revealed. And of course, you can always listen to the podcast on your smartphone or tablet using a podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
If you have a question or comment on anything about food ingredients or this podcast or just want to say hello, drop me a line at foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. That's foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. Also, I have a Facebook page related to the podcast. There, I post news stories related to food ingredients, processed foods, and food trends. Just search in Facebook under the title Food Labels Revealed Podcast and please give it a like. Until later, remember this. If you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. The outro music piece is called Scheming, composed by Kevin McLeod.